We know you have lots of questions. If you think that you've developed symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast, COVID-19, Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. I want to remind our listeners that our knowledge about COVID-19 and the pandemic are rapidly evolving, so anything we discuss on this podcast may have changed by the time you listen to it. My guest today is Dr. Tessa Stecker, who is the Program Director for the Kaiser Permanente Northern California Community Medicine Fellowships, and also Program Director for the KP Northern California Resident Health Policy Elective. In addition to overseeing the Community Medicine Fellows, Dr. Stecker works closely with medical students and residents completing their community medicine and global health rotations and projects at the KP Napa Solano Family Medicine Residency Program. Dr. Stecker is committed to achieving equity for vulnerable populations. Through her fellowship and residency-related activities, she focuses on community medicine, global health, medical education, adverse childhood events, implicit bias, and health policy. She has worked with a predominantly homeless population on Skid Row, has led multidisciplinary teams in Honduras focused on capacity-building efforts, and has led community engagement efforts for underrepresented in medicine students pursuing careers in the health field. Dr. Stecker attended the University of Southern California for her undergraduate education and medical school, where she developed a passion for health education, serving underserved populations, and working with students as a mentor and teacher. Dr. Stecker completed her residency at the Kaiser Permanente Woodland Hills Family Medicine Residency Program, where she also served as a chief resident. Following residency, Dr. Stecker split her time between working at the Downtown Women's Center and the Center for Community Health on Skid Row, teaching Introduction to Clinical Medicine at USC, and working at various local community clinics and urgent care centers. In 2014, Dr. Stecker completed a fellowship in community medicine at Kaiser Permanente Woodland Hills, where she worked with medical students and residents in various community clinics and supervised specialty clinics in dermatology and procedures. In 2015, Dr. Stecker relocated to Northern California to complete the UC San Francisco Faculty Development Fellowship and to develop the Community Medicine and Global Health Fellowship at Kaiser Permanente Napa Solano. Tessa, thank you for joining me on the podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation because so many family and friends are asking really great questions about COVID-19, and I think we would really all benefit from your perspective. Before we get started, is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about yourself? No, I think you did a great job of capturing my um, history, and I thank you for inviting me to the podcast today. Well, you have a really impressive background and very socially justice-minded, so we appreciate that. The first thing I want to ask you about is you run a very well-regarded health policy educational program for residents and medical students. Can you tell us what health policy means and how you view this COVID-19 pandemic through the lens of health policy? Absolutely. Absolutely. 
So health policy refers to local, state, national, and international strategies, programs, and policies that affect not only a community's health, but their overall well-being. So this can include economic policies, public health endeavors, social supports, and health systems, including health equity and access to care for individuals within that system. So during the health policy elective, we take our course participants systematically through the history of healthcare in the U.S., the foundations of healthcare in this country, including insurance systems and resource allocation, and we visit special topic areas such as migrant farm worker health policy, women's health policy, and housing and homelessness. We also consider U.S. health policy through a comparative lens with other global health systems. This provides a nuanced understanding of our healthcare systems and how the principles and components of the U.S. health system compare to the systems of other countries. Lastly, we place an emphasis on the power of physician advocacy through education, community engagement, and political advocacy. Our aim is to endow the next generation of physician leaders with the tools to affect change on both an individual and community level. So the COVID-19 pandemic demonstrates in real time the effect of various health policies. From the historical separation of public health and clinical medicine in the U.S. over time, to the economic policies and structural inequities which create vulnerable populations in this country, sometimes disproportionately compared to other countries. Additionally, the response to the COVID pandemic worldwide is a reflection of the culture and priorities of different countries and exposes the strengths and challenges of these different systems worldwide. So you brought up this idea of comparing our nation's health policy to what's going on in other countries. And I think this whole pandemic and our nation's response to it has really brought up a lot of interest in comparing our country to countries like South Korea that seem to have managed it better. And it's also brought up within health policy the idea that physicians and healthcare workers really should be getting more involved in healthcare policy decisions just because of the way that we've seen the lack of preparation and the, and the way that healthcare workers have been treated. So how can interested individuals, both those involved in healthcare and those who are not, learn more about health policy and even get involved during this critical time in our in our country's history? You know, this is a great question. I know a lot of people right now are feeling overwhelmed and and despondent about the situation and the uneasiness about it makes it challenging just to even go about your day-to-day -day activities. So having an avenue where you can actually affect change and help other people is really crucial during this time. And I was thinking about a couple of examples of of policy and advocacy work that could be done during this time. One of the ways that anybody can contribute is by contributing to just the opinions and voices out there on this topic. So either responding to an editorial um, with an, a letter to the editor in your local or state um, newspaper or, or blog post, or also just publishing an op-ed, an opinion piece related to a current event. It can be a great way of having your voice heard and advocating on behalf of the group. And Ted, I'd be happy to provide um, a list of websites that has tips or tricks on writing these pieces um, for your audience. Also, if you're in the healthcare field, you should definitely check out your professional organization's websites for advocacy options. 
These organizations generally have an advocacy arm and many now have specific COVID-19 related advocacy efforts where lobbyists are advocating on behalf of those professional groups for additional resources and support during this time. Your contribution can be as simple as completing a survey so the group has more information about the experience of frontline providers during this crisis. That's great. It sounds like you've got access to a whole bunch of resources that our audience might want to take a look at. So we'll make sure we get those from you and get them into the show notes. I'd like to tap into your expertise and ask you to discuss how the COVID-19 pandemic is affecting large groups and perhaps small groups of vulnerable patients. Absolutely. So definitely with the work that I do, um, this is something that came to the forefront of my thinking as soon as we realized that this was going to have a huge impact, not only in China where it started, but throughout the world. In the U.S., unfortunately, we have large segments of the population that we categorize as vulnerable. Undocumented individuals, those living close to or below the poverty line, people who are incarcerated, and the homeless population, to name a few. These are groups who at baseline struggle to live fulfilling lives and who have more economic pressures than a typical individual and who don't have equitable ability to socially distance, whether it's economic necessity, keeping them in jobs where social distancing may not be possible or not having a say in where they live. These groups not only are more susceptible to contracting COVID-19, but they also may not have equitable access to healthcare system and resources. And the long-term economic implications of the pandemic and the efforts to mitigate its effects will also affect them disproportionately. Yes, I think we're seeing some of that already with, you know, today is April 3rd. We just got the jobs report that 6.6 million people have filed unemployment claims. And for those who are already living paycheck to paycheck or even uh, more on the margin than that, that certainly has a big impact having children at home from school when you may not have childcare available for them, that creates an impact. Having children home from school and perhaps not having access to the internet at home, you know, we can go on and on. We're even seeing that with undocumented individuals continuing to work and now being seen as essential when just, you know, months ago, the government was really putting in efforts to create mass deportations. And, and you know, it's interesting how perspective how perspectives shift in the face of all of this. At the same time, this COVID-19 pandemic, I think we're seeing is identifying and exposing a lot of gaps and issues with our nation's healthcare system. Do you, do you care to comment on, on what you're seeing with regard to that? Absolutely. When I think about our healthcare system, I think about two things. What was, what's happening actually outside of our healthcare system and then the healthcare system itself. And so when I talk about what's happening outside of the healthcare system, I'm really talking about what we are spending in social supports and systems in this country versus the healthcare system itself. Compared to other countries that are at the similar economic level as the U.S., we spend nearly double the percentage of our national GDP on medical care and the healthcare system itself, and about half of what other countries spend on social supportive services. So for instance, public services for the elderly, paid parental leave, and publicly funded childcare services. In general, countries that spend more on these services have better population health outcomes, and the lack of social spending has contributed to the large groups of vulnerable populations that we discussed earlier. 
The second component is the healthcare system itself, which is unfortunately very fragmented and fractured. Multiple insurers, inequitable distribution of hospitals and specialists, and a variety of public and private systems all competing for a variety of multiple funding sources contribute to the fragmentation of the system. Unlike other countries of similar economic status, where 100% of the population generally has insurance coverage, only 90% of the population in the U.S. has coverage. Roughly 60% of the U.S. population receives health insurance through their employers. As more and more people face job loss, this also will leave a new segment of the population without their health insurance coverage. Interestingly enough, even though the U.S. has more hospital employees than other countries, the extra employees that we have are typically administrative, and we actually have fewer physicians per capita than other countries in a similar economic status. And lastly, we have less hospitals per capita than other countries. So for instance, you mentioned South Korea earlier. South Korea has about 74 hospitals per million people. The UK has about 34 hospitals per million people, and the US only has 17 hospitals per million people. So given all of these factors and the fact that people in the US are more likely to have out-of-pocket healthcare costs and are more likely to delay accessing care due to the expense, we face this double burden, an inadequate social support system, which contributes at baseline to unhealth an unhealthier population and a more inequitable distribution of services. And then we also have a healthcare system itself that really isn't set to meet the needs of our population in general, never mind in a time where we're experiencing a pandemic. Yes, and I think this pandemic is creating almost a perfect storm around some of the gaps in our system. And I'm glad you bring up the uniqueness of healthcare in the US, where it's largely dependent on individuals getting healthcare insurance through their employers. And that is, we're seeing it in the news already, creating a, a really significant issue as jobless claims increase and as people are losing their jobs their healthcare insurance is going to go away right at the same time and, and right at the time when they perhaps might need it most. I want to zero in a little bit on a particular vulnerable patient population since we've been talking about vulnerable patients. Homelessness has been a major issue facing metropolitan areas and even smaller communities. How do you see COVID-19 affecting this population in particular? Absolutely. Well, this is a population that has a number of challenges already stacked against it. Having reliable, safe, and consistent housing is important for a variety of safety and health reasons. Even without considering the implications of COVID-19, unhoused individuals tend to have poorer health outcomes, more chronic diseases, decreased access to preventative care services, and increased mental health needs. In addition, the public health guidance that we're being given to mitigate the spread includes washing your hands frequently, which is tough when you have variable access to soap and water, social distancing, which is challenging if you're living in a homeless encampment or on the streets, and limiting your movements to only essential activities. When you're struggling every day to meet your basic needs, which often means that you are visiting multiple different social services and charities, it's challenging to limit your movements and you may have more essential movements than somebody else would have in a typical day. So you bring up this issue of people living in very close quarters and not being able to maintain social distancing and not having good access to hygiene measures that many of us are, are able to access 
So what are cities doing to help prevent the spread of COVID-19 in this homeless population where they can be clustered together and often do lack those hygiene measures such as soap and clean water and hand sanitizer and, and all of the other things that are missing from store shelves these days? Absolutely. I mean, cities throughout the U.S. are recognizing the importance of this particular population, and a number of measures have been instituted, including the screening of sheltered populations, people who are already um, in homeless shelters um, for their living. Science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us? Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions. Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes. Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing? Yes. Can a roller coaster really kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes, yes! Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. And making sure that people, when they are entering those shelters, are screened appropriately so that they can be treated and receive medical care if they need to. Also, not breaking up homeless encampments right now, because it would seem as though maybe if you broke up the homeless encampments, then you wouldn't have this cluster of people. But then what you're really doing is you're preventing, you're trying to prevent people from scattering throughout the community instead of being in one area. And within those homeless encampments of having the tents be spaced out so that there can be some social distancing even within that. And another important component is really in protecting all of the people who who are providing frontline services to this group, people who are volunteering, people who are providing on the ground medical care, um, food and support in this time and making sure that those individuals also have the appropriate protective gear in servicing this population. And one of the most important things, I think, is limiting the number of newly unhoused individuals, which is why measures to limit evictions during this time are so important. So it sounds like what you're saying is it really takes a public health perspective and an epidemiology perspective in addition to kind of the social work and healthcare needs that previously existed. Absolutely. So Tessa, one of your areas of focus in your professional career has been on adverse childhood experiences or what we call ACEs. Can you tell our audience more about what this is and how it affects physical and mental health in the long term? Absolutely. So adverse childhood experiences are essentially 10 events in the categories of neglect, abuse, and household dysfunction that occur before the age of 18. So this can include experiencing emotional or physical abuse, losing a parent, or not having enough food growing up. The more of these adverse experiences an individual has, the more likely they are to have poor health outcomes in the future. Not only their mental health, but physical health as well, including an increased incidence of chronic diseases and cancers. It's important to note that having experiences that build resilience can help mitigate the effect of these adverse experiences. So for instance, having a consistent adult who is encouraging, supportive, and reliable can help buffer a child experiencing abuse, neglect, or household dysfunction. 
So I want to dive just a little bit more into this because I think that at least some or even perhaps many of the individuals in our audience may not have heard about ACEs before, these adverse childhood experiences. It's not a new phenomenon, but our knowledge around it is relatively new. And even our knowledge about how ACEs can affect your your mental and your physical health. Can you tell us a little bit more about just what has changed in the last few years around our knowledge on this topic? Absolutely. So this work was first studied um, with a population of patients who were going through weight loss surgery, and they had all of the different supports in place. So they had nutritionists, and they had exercise specialists and counselors to help them achieve their weight loss goals. And in following up with these patients, they were finding that multiple patients were gaining back the weight that they had originally lost. And they couldn't understand why this group of people who had all of the supports in place that should have guaranteed success were actually experiencing failure in this realm. And so in looking at these patients, in in speaking with them and doing a little bit of a deeper dive in their history, they discovered this pattern of these events of neglect, abuse, and household dysfunction that were higher in this subset of the population. And since then, they've expanded this work to look at communities all over the U.S., in fact, all over the world to see how these events can contribute to outcomes. And what they found is it's not so important which one of the events you identify as having experienced when you were a child, but the number of events, meaning it's sort of a dose-dependent relationship. The more adverse experiences that you have as a child, the more you will have potentially worse outcomes, both in the mental and physical health realm in the future. Yes, and I'll I'll tell our audience that this is kind of such a a newly recognized important piece of mental and physical health care that we all as healthcare providers, as physicians, are are really trying to figure out how to adequately screen for adverse childhood experiences and are learning actively how to get people the support that they need to deal with the the sequelae of these adverse childhood experiences. So very rapidly developing field of, of healthcare and, and medicine. There's been concern that the stress of the COVID-19 pandemic, with parents being out of work, with children being home from school, all the stresses related to all of that, that this will lead to a significant increase in child abuse. Can you share your thoughts about this? Absolutely. Uh, This is definitely an issue of concern right now. The entire world is collectively experiencing a trauma with COVID-19, but for children experiencing ACEs, this trauma is additive to the routine experiences that they have in their homes. Roughly 45% of children in the U.S. have experienced ACEs, and these kids are experiencing a range of ongoing ACEs and Typically, when they go to school, they may get a respite from this for about eight hours. But now, with shelter-in-place orders, they are sequestered in their homes, oftentimes in an unsafe environment. Additionally, with increased financial and emotional stressors on parents and guardians, the incidence of abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction will likely increase. Yes. And in one of the other episodes of this podcast, we actually talked with a mental health professional and I was asking about opinions around what are the long-term mental health consequences 
for all of us, but in particular for children who are experiencing this in a different way than adults are, and kind of thoughts about what that might look like long term and what we can do to try to buffer some of that. So we'll link to that in the show notes so that our audience can go back and listen to the ideas around having real structures in place and trying to create some positives out of what is really a unique situation in the history of the world. Tessa, one of your other areas of professional interest is in implicit bias, and you've developed this as a curricular area for residents and for faculty members. Can you tell us a bit more about the concept of implicit bias and how training can happen around this? Absolutely. So implicit bias refers to thoughts and feelings that unconsciously affect our actions and decisions. And I emphasize unconsciously because oftentimes people have trouble isolating what is an explicit bias versus implicit bias. So I will give some examples that will hopefully help to tease this out. But specifically in the medical center, when we consider implicit bias, we consider how ingrained unconscious attitudes or beliefs about different groups of people may affect medical decision making. And you can imagine that this is really important in terms of patient outcomes and in communication between patients and their health teams. Our implicit biases are affected by a variety of inputs. So where we grew up, how we were raised, what we see on television, all contribute to this sort of background humming in the back of our minds that contributes to how it is that we um, interact with the world. So for instance, consider a child that is being carried in his father's arms and is walking across the street. And the father walks by a person of a different ethnicity and involuntary flinches or holds the child a little bit tighter. So the child in that moment is getting the message that someone from that group that the father just passed should be feared. We all have implicit biases, which can be about different racial ethnic groups, ability status, or religion. For anyone who hasn't done so, I would definitely recommend visiting Project Implicit, the Harvard-based website, which has been pioneering um, study in this area and has multiple implicit bias association and tests that you can take. So the difference, for instance, between the implicit bias or the explicit bias would be saying out loud that you don't like a certain group because of a certain reason, right? And you're consciously acknowledging and saying that as opposed to shifting where you are in a room based on who else is in the room because unconsciously you've been trained to not trust a certain group or individual. That's great, Tessa. We'll make sure that we get the link to Harvard's Project Implicit and put that in the show notes as well for anybody who wants to take a look at that. On the news, we've actually been hearing about episodes of xenophobia or racism directed at Asians in our communities related to COVID-19. And we've even heard some wording around how this virus is is called um, coming out of our own president's um, mouth and tweets. Mm-hmm. How does this type of behavior relate to the idea of implicit bias? And what can we all do to help combat this? It's a great question. You know, this is one of the unfortunate consequences of this pandemic. When people are fearful, their implicit biases tend to be heightened and they are more readily apparent. So in the cases that you're referring to, some might be indicative of implicit bias and some are example of explicit or conscious bias. I'm going to focus on the implicit bias aspect. In general, when it comes to implicit biases, the key is really in recognizing your biases. That's the crucial step. 
Self-awareness is key to mitigating your biases. To some level, we'll all continue to have implicit biases throughout our lives, but we can take tangible steps to recognize, counter, and challenge our stereotypes. It's lifelong work, but it's crucial to creating a more equitable society. So I would encourage the listeners, if you are finding yourself thinking about a certain group in a certain way or overhearing conversations, challenge what it is that you're hearing. Look for the facts behind it and don't be afraid to engage in conversations with other people so that we do not let these stereotypes overtake our lives in this crucial time when we are really trying to be more compassionate and care for one another in thoughtful ways. Tessa, this has been such a rich discussion on on really um, interesting topics that I feel we could probably make an episode out of each of these topics that you brought up with vulnerable populations, including homelessness and implicit bias and adverse childhood experiences. So I want to ask you, is is there anything that we've talked about here that you want to take a deeper dive into or anything that I haven't asked that you'd like our audience to know about? That's great. And thank you again for having me, Ted. I think sort of as the takeaway, really, there are so many vulnerable populations out there who need help, assistance, and advocacy in this time. And that number is unfortunately only going to grow over the next couple of months. And so anything that you can do in your community, whether it's picking up the phone and talking to somebody who doesn't have a lot of social support in their lives, to seeing if you could volunteer at a local food bank, to being involved um, in advocacy on a local or state level and encouraging the people who are in the position to make decisions to provide more resources and support for all populations in this time, I would highly recommend that we all do our part right now. I think that's really going to be what sets us apart in this situation is if we really take the time to help those who are most vulnerable. That's outstanding advice. And as I would expect from you, really zeroing in on what we can do to improve our communities and the lives of those around us. As we wrap up this interview, one thing that I've been asking my guests is if they'd like to give a shout out to a small business or a restaurant in their community, because these small small businesses, restaurants, all of the workers who work in in the restaurants are really suffering at this time as they're not able to conduct business as usual. And we do want to practice social distancing and be careful, but we can still do takeout and find ways to support those businesses. So is there any small business or restaurants in the community where you live that you'd like to give a shout out to and encourage people to support those businesses? Absolutely. And what a great way of contributing to your community. I'm fortunate enough to live in Napa, California, which has a ton of wonderful food options and restaurant options. And I highly recommend that anybody visit the Model Bakery um, for their wonderful pastries to be able to take those out. Also, Buttercream um, has been providing tons of wonderful pastries and donuts for the community, but they are also have really increased their production of bread. And I know that that is something that people are struggling to find right now at your typical grocery stores. So consider going to your local bakeries and seeing if they have bread as well. It's fresh, it's delicious, um, and oftentimes the cost is comparable. That's great, Tessa. And you, you mentioned you live in Napa, so I have to ask the question, once the wineries and tasting rooms are back open, do you have a favorite or two that you want to 
give a shout out to? Oh my, we might need a whole other podcast to go through the list of preferred wineries. Um, but I definitely love a Stag's Leap winery. They have a beautiful tasting room and stone mason type of house that you can visit. Uh, Pine Ridge, which is nearby, is also a great winery um, to visit. And a, a good friend of mine uh, works at Stony Hill, which is a small um, winery also in St. Helena. That's a great experience. That's great. I'm sure they'll appreciate the business once they're, once the pandemic has hopefully passed us by because they, they very definitely have seen a, a decrease in business. Tessa, I want to thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your expertise and insights. It's been a really great discussion and, and I hope our audience enjoys it. Thank you so much, Ted. Continue doing this work. It's wonderful. We will stay safe. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis.